welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Piecemeal Podcast. Today, I'm joined by one of my favorite people and former professors, Dr. Tracy Floriani. She is a professor of English at Oklahoma City University, where she teaches American literature and writing. She also serves as director of the Center of Interpersonal Studies through Film and Literature, the university's public humanities initiative, and is currently the president of MILIS, the Society for the Study of Multi-Ethnic Literature in the United States. She's the author of 50s Ethnicities, the Ethic Novel and Mass Culture of Mid-Century, and editor of the forthcoming Approaches to Teaching the Works of Ralph Ellison, and is currently working on a biography of Fanny McConnell Edison. Welcome so much to the show. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. We're going to jump right into the questions with who or what inspired you and led you to the fine and creative arts. As a human, uh, what led me to interest in the fine arts and creative arts is as a child, I was just a bookworm. And I was thinking about this, that I don't know how that happened because no one in my family read a lot. Um, even though I was uh, encouraged to read and education was was encouraged as a value in my family, I don't think anyone else was a big reader. And I just, uh, books were a part of my life. I always thought I would be a novelist when I was a kid. My father, however, was a painter and he didn't do it for a living. He was um, someone who just felt called to make art. And so I grew up with someone in my home who you know, kind of modeled that you, outside of the paycheck job that you should have kind of creative life. So there was that influence. And then, you know, how I became a literature professor is a whole other story. But the person who I think set me on that path was my brother but by making an offhand comment that I should be a professor. And I remember thinking like, huh, maybe I'll do that. <laughs> so that was when I was in high school. So I thought I would be a writer. I studied creative writing into graduate school. And then I found myself at this kind of fork in the road where I felt like I had to decide between creative writing and being a literary critic. And at the moment, the things I was thinking about really called me towards literary criticism. So I set aside my fiction writing impulses. Um, I think I'm a person who has lots of ideas, but finds it hard to be consistently creative enough to call myself an artist, I think. Well, you've done a fantastic job at being a professor. I mean, all of the books and your classes that I took with you in undergrad still stick with me. And some of them are my still some of my favorite books I've read to this day. That means a lot to me. I mean, I, I've taught for over 20 some years and I've had hundreds of students. And so I don't hear from very many of them. And 
it's really an honor to have, I don't know, remember what year you graduated exactly, but it's got to be over 20 years ago, maybe about that. Um, um, or not, maybe not that much, 18, I don't know. Um, but I, I, I'm honored that you still even remember the, that class fondly or um, that, the experience of reading books with me. So thank you for that. And speaking of books, we can't not ask, do you have a favorite book or a book that you even return to on a regular basis? Um, I don't think you're allowed to ask literature professors if they have a favorite book. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I have so many favorite books. I mean, I think we all have books that are favorites at different points in our life. You know, I was thinking about that, you know, like the favorite book is a kid kind of question. And I think when we're kids, we reread more often than, than we do as adults because we um, seek that familiarity of, of a favorite book or a favorite movie when we're kids. And now I, I do reread, but I reread for teaching. And so it's a very different kind of reread. And even books that I love to reread and teach over and over again, I have to take a break from because I get too familiar with them. Um, and then if you love them too much, they're really hard to teach because you can't let people see other things than what you want them to see. And so you have to get distance. So I'm dodging your question. <laughs> I will say there, okay, are type, there are types of books I like to read a lot. And I, I love to read books that uh, I like literary fiction for, for, for the most part. And I love to read books that have what the novelist Jane Smiley calls high game quotient. So she argues that a novel that's sort of a whodunit that's kind of plainly written, but you, you know, you're reading it to find out like the solution to the mystery um, once you know who done it, you don't ever want to read it again because there's nothing else in the book to offer besides that, you know, kind of um, mystery and solution. But a book that has high game quotient has linguistic value and uh, poetic value in the language beyond the plot and that that engages your mind as you read. And that's the stuff that makes you want to reread because you see something new in the language every time rather than just something in the plot. And those are the kinds of books I like to read. And the authors that I think do that kind of thing very well are, are people like William Faulkner and Toni Morrison and Louise Erdrich and Alexander Hammond and uh, you know, even Cormac McCarthy. Um, so Peter Carey, for someone who's outside of North America, he's an Australian author who I think does that very well. So so yeah, those are the kinds of books I really like to read. And I like to, I like to teach students to like to read them too because they don't always want to. I like those kinds of novels as well, but I feel like it's not as common nowadays for people to pick up. I like to call them classics, you know. So what's the book that sticks with you most from your college years? What are the titles that you were referring to? Because I don't even remember what what we read together. <laughs> when was, would that have been? Do you, is it early 2000s, <laughs> mid-2000s? It was in the early 2000s because I was in grad geez, undergrad from 02 to 06. Okay. So. Yeah. Okay. A few years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, Dracula, I remember really loving because oh. I was like, wow, we actually get to read a horror novel in at school. <laughs> it's such a good novel. It is. I loved it. And then I loved that you showed all the different like videos and, and like movies of how people portrayed it over the years. Those yeah. were great. And then um, I'll never forget Margaret Atwood. Oh, gosh. Handmaid's Tale. I remember loving that so much that I wrote the author and told her about it. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. Little did you know. Yeah. That, yeah. Like she said, I was writing a, I wasn't trying to write a manual. Mm -hmm. <laughs> she she posted that on Twitter last, last summer. Um, 
Wow. I, you know, I was thinking about teaching Dracula. I haven't taught it in a long time. And um, I, I, I've just finished a semester and still trying to figure out alongside my students how we're navigating this space. Uh, it's not really after the pandemic and we're trying very hard to be back to normal and it doesn't work. And so uh, I was just thinking like I couldn't teach a novel like Dracula now. It's too mm-hmm. long and we don't have the focus for it right now. The, the culture has shifted a bit because it's what, I don't know, 600 pages or something, 580. I don't know. It's a long novel. It goes kind of quickly though. Yeah. So I'll try it again someday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'd love to talk about some current projects that you're working on. Is there anything that you're able to share with listeners? Sure. I've been working for, oh gosh, I want to say I'm in like year seven of working on a biography that you mentioned in the bio of Fanny McConnell Ellison, who was the wife of Ralph Ellison. And I'm, you know, I was not trained how to write biography in graduate school or how to do archival research. I came from a program and an era that was kind of literary theory driven. And so I've had to do a lot of self-teaching and it's been a slow project, but it's been great because you get to be sort of a a historian on the one hand as you go through archival documents, um, but you get to be a real storyteller on the other hand because you're you're looking at material culture, which I have studied a lot in my training, and say, what is the story that these documents and random things are telling? Um, And so really getting to create a narrative uh, like that is really, it's a great creative challenge as well as sort of a a historian, amateur historian, you know, scholar challenge. And so I've been really enjoying that. And I'm hoping, I'm about 300 pages into it. I've been to over a dozen archived collections. Uh, so it's been a really long project. It's someone else's life. You have to get it right, you know, so it's slow work. But I'm hoping to wrap up that, the rough draft of the full manuscript in the next few months, uh, maybe this summer, and then take it to the next stage. So that'll that's one thing I'm deeply working on now and, and really wanting to see go to its next phase. Uh, and I'm starting a brand new, well, and I'm, you know, I'm finishing up this edited collection on teaching, which is, you know, I love talking about teaching. It's fun. Um, and there's a lot of space for creativity in teaching. And so it's been nice to work with other authors who get to think about and write about how they teach, which is really fun because there's so many different approaches. And then I've got a brand new project. I'm just starting with a friend um, co-authoring. We're trying to co-author a book and that'll be a first for me. And it'll also be a first for me in that it's going to be a work of creative nonfiction. So not a genre I usually work in. And so um, I'm very excited though, because there's just all this creative possibility. I want to do something after wrapping up these heavy projects that are very scholarly. I want to do something that's really exploratory and lots of space to genre bend and um and the collaboration should be really fun too so um i can talk more about it if you want it's in this very early stages though so it's really hard to say exactly what it will be like but of course of course it's all very nebulous and you've got lots of ideas flowing right yes we've got i've got a new notebook i just started that i turn to and scribble in whenever i'm fed up with whatever else i'm working on and just want to play with ideas. I love ideas. I'm the kind of writer who would rather just like have my, I am more of an idea person and I find writing actually very difficult. 
Um, and, and I, so I sympathize with my students because I find writing difficult of all kinds, creative, critical, analytical. Um, but I, I wish my ideas could just kind of like go out into the world and take form automatically, or that I could just like be, be a think tank unto myself and have like a team of people write it for me as I spew out the ideas, but it doesn't work that way. I mean, it does if you're like, you know, James Patterson, I guess he's got like a whole team. That's why he writes, what, two books a year or something. I definitely think that the idea stage is a really fun oh, yeah. part of of the creative process. You know, whether it's writing or any other kind of creative pursuit, the idea stage is just really exciting. It is. I find, and I, I'm curious if you find this too as a creative person um, who has an analytical mind, I find it hard to just be like spontaneously creative, to just sit down and make. I, I've... I'm more of a planner and I feel like that can be beneficial and it can also get in the way of the creative process. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's weird because um, I'm not a super planner <laughs> or super spontaneous. So I'm just like, I think I'm going to create something right now. <laughs> you know, And then I just see what happens. That's kind of a happy middle ground. Yeah. I find that I'm, um, maybe it's because I've been studying books for so long that when I think about what I want to write, I'm already trying to anticipate the shape of it. For me, having a, like a skeleton or some kind of framework in place really helps me imagine it into being. Um, I can't just sit down at the computer and start writing like some people can. And then just like, they'll see what shape it takes. I have to start with the shape. And I'm willing to let the shape evolve, of course. But So then you love outlines? Uh, I don't like formal outlines. I call them maps. I like to map. I think metaphorically, like I want to I plan the destinations along the journey, but have a sense of where I'm going, but be open to like detours and adventures before I get to the destination. Because um, I think the journey is so important in the creative process. And I'm, I'm not just interested in the end product. I've got it. You know, it has to be a rewarding process. And um, so I like to I like to write a map. And it's, it's I use language, but I, it's not outlined. And it's, it's more of a, and it's not like word cloudy either. It's just sort of a, uh, I, I tend to have like words and lots of arrows and lines is kind of how I operate. Nice. nice. As long as, you know, you've found what works for you. So that's yeah. the important part. Yeah. And it has to be on paper and pencil or pen. Um, yeah. I, I've been really interested in those cognitive studies about how writing things with your hand on paper actually help you learn differently than when you're, say, typing things up as you're listening or thinking. So. Yeah. Believe it or not, that's how I am with my grocery list. Like I have to write my grocery list on paper. <laughs> I can't type it in a note on my phone. Like I just can't. <laughs> Even a grocery list could become a poem. You never know. Yes. A found poem. <laughs> so speaking again about writing in the creative process, what is one of your favorite parts and least favorite parts about the creative process? Well, I probably hinted at the my least favorite part is how slow it is <laughs> for me. Um, I am in awe of people who can crank out good writing and quickly. And I, I think that's the other part that's frustrating for me is I 
there are so many writers whose work just bowls me over their power with words. And I love words and still I can't make them obey the way I want them to. And I can't write like I would like to write, you know, just in terms of the level of gorgeous prose. That's my least favorite part. My most favorite part is when I've written something and I put it away and I come back to it and I think, wow, I wrote that. I don't remember where that came from. I'm so impressed with that. Like when it actually turns out well and I'm surprised about it, that's just such a delight. Because there is that kind of, you know, people have been trying for forever to figure out what is this mystical thing that happens that something comes out of you that's creative and you almost don't have control over it. So that's my favorite part of the creative process. And of course, as I've indicated, the idea phase, I get really excited talking about new projects and ideas for projects. And, you know, like I think about artists in their studio. I remember as, a, as an undergrad, I had a lot of friends who were art majors and I would just marvel at how they would just be in their studios painting and sculpting and things all night long. And I just, I remember thinking like, I wish I had the kind of creative energy to come up with ideas of things to make all the time. Like I just don't have that when it comes to visual art, even though I spent my childhood drawing like crazy and thinking I was going to do art more visual art. Um, but I do, I realize like I have to give myself credit for the fact that I am always, I am in that mode when it comes to ideas for literary criticism. Like I can't read a book for fun and not think about how, what would I say about this if I, oh, I need this, I need to turn this into an article about this, or I need to teach this and do this with it and pair it with this, you know, film or, you know, like I'm always thinking about things I can write and make, even though I don't follow through on all of those ideas. So that's really the fun part for me. I recently took a venture to discount bookstore and I came across the book Metropolis by Thea von Harbo. I've never read it before. Have you ever read it? Oh, is that the one the film is ba based on, the famous silent film? No, I've never read the novel. I've always been curious about it because it does seem to have like a big working class element to it, which I like. But no, I've never read the novel. Yeah, I've never read it. I'm excited to dig in because the, like you said, the language is just gorgeous. So it's another one of those. And that's the tricky part too of reading books in translation is finding a good translation. Can you... I don't think translators get enough credit. I, I don't know if you've interviewed any translators. I haven't um, yet. That's a good idea, though. Yeah, because I—I I mean, I've—I did—I did some translation projects in graduate school. I was working on some poetry translation, and I—and it was a really good learning experience because I realized that you're literally translating the language, and you're also doing interpretation of what the poem means, so that you can get its essence through, and then manipulate the language to make sure that meaning comes through from you know that it's not just a literal translation and so uh it's a real art form and i'm I, i'm always sad that translators don't get marked credit <laughs> i know that gabriel garcia marquez had a favorite translator of his work that he thought did the best at it um and i can't remember that person's name but um so it sounds like you found a really good translation from the german unless you're reading german and i just didn't realize it <laughs> oh no <laughs> definitely in english and I've only skimmed the first page, but so far it looks great. I think I always read the first paragraph before I purchase a book. That's usually the deal breaker for me. It's silly. Like this book looks interesting, but let me read the first paragraph. I also have, do you have rules for yourself with reading? I do. Like I, I have developed rules about what will make me buy a book, what will make me finish a book. If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, 
overwhelmed or exhausted, the resources and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. I'm I'm really um I'm pickier than I used to be and I guess it's just because I have such limited time. So often if I'm interested in a book, I'll check it out of the library first and then if I really love it, I will go out and buy it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So that you, something you know you'll reread. Yes, yes, cuz I have limited time and limited book space. Mm-hmm. Shelf space rather. Yeah, and there are, I, I picked this up from someone else somewhere along the road, but there are so many books in the world and you can't read all the books you want to read. So why make yourself read one? I think a lot of us feel obligated to finish a book we've started. I do often, especially if I've purchased it like in hardback or something. <laughs> but um, I, this person said, you know, if it hasn't grabbed you by page 64, I don't know why the 64, but, um, you know, then then stop. There's other books that you could be spending your energy on in this limited time on earth. So, so I'd use that rule now. And I've actually one time had a book. I remember the book too. I was just not into it. It was not going anywhere. It wasn't picking up and I was about to put it down and I literally hit like page 63. and was like, oh, whoa, here it goes. And then, then I stuck with it. <laughs> Another rule I've developed is I, I will not recommend a book I've read to someone else's book club. Oh, that is smart. You never know who those people are in the book club. and what Exactly. Because like. I had read this book and I was loved it so much. And I recommended it to a friend. And my friend thought it sounded interesting. She recommended it to her, her book club and they all hated it. Oh, no. I was like, okay. That's a smart rule. Yeah. I sometimes have old friends text me and ask me for, you know, book recommendations. And I'm always a little scared to, yeah, I feel like I always give them qualifiers like, well, if you like this kind of book, but this is the kind of book I like that you might not like. So, (laughs) Yes. It's surprisingly hard to recommend books to people because everyone's tastes are so diverse. It's true. That's why I like teaching because I can force people to read what I want them to read. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) That's the way to do it. (laughs) And I always tell them if they're not enjoying it, I'll say, because this is true. I really honestly believe this. There are books that I like to read and there are books that I like to study. And it's two different modes of reading, right? There are books we read for fun. And then there are books that are like just really interesting to study, even if you don't enjoy the read, you know. Uh, and most people will nod and go like, oh, yeah, that's true. Like, I was forced to sit through Wuthering Heights, you know, and I hated it. But then when I learned about it and we studied it, I really liked it. That wasn't me. I I don't think I've ever taught Wuthering Heights. <laughs> but I've had people say that. Students say that. I, this, is the, this is what I argue when I teach Faulkner often because not everybody likes him like I do. <laughs> is, is there a book that you haven't taught in your career that you would like to? 
I'm sure there are many. Yes. Every once in a while, I, I, I have this rule that I read. I don't, I'm not allowed to read with a pen in bed because as a literary critic, I often annotate while I read. And so there will be books that I'm reading for fun in bed. And then I'll be like, oh, I kind of want to teach this. Um, (laughs) I think that, uh, yeah, so eventually those do make their way into the classroom. And I try to think about ways to like work other books around it because I try to teach kind of thematic courses. Um, But I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now of one that I haven't taught yet that I want to teach. If I think of it, I'll, I'll but yeah, I've, I've just, I've always got a backlog of things I've been reading that I would love to bring into the classroom. I teach a, a class and it's an upper level seminar in ethnic literature every couple years and it's subtitled what's hot now. And uh, what I try to do is teach things that are getting a lot of buzz and a lot of critical praise from just the past, say five years or so. Um, and so that's an ever, it, has, it keeps me on my toes. It makes me read a lot of new stuff. Um, but it's always hard because there's so much I want to teach that's hot right now that I haven't figured out a way to fit it in to make sure that there's kind of fair representation. So I, I guess one example, I, a title did just come to mind now. There's a, a book by Ocean Vuong called uh, On Earth We Are Briefly Gorgeous. That's just, he's a poet, but it's a really poetic narrative and it's a very difficult one it's got a lot of like abuse and trauma and difficult issues Uh, it's a coming of age story and I would love to fit that in somewhere but I don't think this is the right time the right class hasn't come along I'm finding it's very hard right now for students to read stuff that has a lot of kind of traumatic content just because of what's been going on in the world so I try to be sensitive to that too so you talked about how you enjoyed creative writing and you're getting into that as well. But what is a piece of writing advice, and this could, I guess, go towards academic writing as well, that you ignore and one that you always follow? <laughs> well, I have a colleague who says all writing is creative. He gets mad when I when I say like, you know, the creative writing students versus the literary criticism students. He's like, all writing is creative. And it is true because you're actually creating something. But that said, I think the advice that was the advice that I ignore, (laughs) I always follow my advice about mapping and pre-writing. I do think you need to, if you're going to write something that's bigger and complicated and sophisticated, you do have to plan it first. You can't just sit down and write. Or you sit down and write and then you stop. Like sometimes I'll write an introduction or two or three paragraphs and then stop and map, right? Where will it go from here? What did this introduction generate? I always follow that advice and I use that when I teach writing. Um, The advice I always ignore, and it's accidental, is how to do good transitions. I'm always getting on my students' cases about like, this idea just abruptly shifted to this idea and you didn't help your reader understand why you're going from here to here. And then I'll go back and look at my drafts and be like, oh, where are my transitions? How did that happen? So yeah, it's, it's weird how that happens. I don't remember if I ever took any writing classes from you. It's been so long ago. Well, I mean, that's the other thing is in literature classes, it used to be, you could, you could go in and say, well, um, you all have taken comp and now you're going to apply those skills to a literature text. And I didn't have to teach much writing in a literature class, but now I do. And I, and that's as, as a um, part of it is that um, they don't always know how to, how to apply skills, you know, and just helping them apply them. But especially since the pandemic, we currently have 
students who no fault of their own, you know, finished high school online. And um, I had students tell me like, because of the workload and at constant adaptation, like we just weren't asked to turn in any essays. So they, you know, I, I got people who were college freshmen in the fall of 21 who hadn't written an essay in over a year and a half. Um, and so now I think we're, st- you know, I'm still having to help them see how to really do it well. Um, and so I've been doing a lot more like kind of instruction and workshopping in every class on, you know, even if it's just like a mini workshop for 15 minutes on here's how to actually make this turn out better. Um, much more than I used to. Maybe I'm just getting like, maybe I'm just a pushover, but part of it for me is I want to read better essays. (laughs) I'm getting too old. I need to, I need to like pre-plan to make sure they're better when I get them. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the good thing uh, about, teaching those skills as it translates to so many other portions of a, a person's life once they graduate. You know, they can take those skills and use it to brush up their resumes. They can use it for presentations in their work. You know, it it, it goes so much further than just writing a, a literary paper. I hope so. I hope so. We did have a student, we teach a class, I teach a class now and then called Critical Reading and Writing that's sort of the gateway for our English majors and minors of how to how to write like an English major is kind of what it should be called um, and how to study like an English major and but this is for creative students too but um, our pre-law students often take the class their advisors put them in it because they like the way we teach them writing and I've had a student who went to law school in her first year of law school said I'm so glad I studied poetry because studying poetry really helped me in law school and I was really surprised to hear her say that, but she said, you know, just the attention to detail, uh, the the way you're trying to, to uh, persuade through nuances of language, like that really helped her a lot in law school. So I thought that was fascinating. So mm-hmm. I think you're right. I could definitely see that. I mean, even even proper punctuation can make or break something mm-hmm. for somebody. Yeah, no one listens to me when it comes to punctuation. Um, you'd be sad to know. You might not. Did you know? I, here's what I see, because I see trends. I've been teaching so long. No one uses apostrophes anymore. And when they do use them, they don't use them correctly. So oh, that's no. so interesting. And I'm, you know, I'm really open to the idea that language is an evolving organism, you know, that, but I think the, the apostrophe is going to die. I believe it. Um, that's so sad. <laughs> yeah, there's a really great, I love language. So I did a lot of linguistics in the past too. And because um, language is this great creative medium. And um, I, there's a great podcast by the linguist John McWhorter. Um, now I'm blanking on the name of his podcast. It'll come to me in a minute. But he's got an episode uh, against Strunk and White um, about, you know, why, all, you know, any rules about sentence structure or not ending with a preposition that those are just arbitrary preferences that someone decided to make into a rule. <laughs> and that language is really this evolution, evolutionary organism um, that we shouldn't. And, and I found that very liberating to listen to him tear down the usage manuals. <laughs> uh, what's it called? It's like lex- a rebel. It the word lexic- <laughs> it's a play on the word lexicon. I'm totally lexicon, lexicon Valley, something like that. <laughs> nice. I'll have to look that up. Yeah. John McWhorter. He's funny. It's interesting. You mentioned about sentences and language evolving because I remember a very early thing that teachers used to tell us growing up is don't start your sentences with, but and, and, and I'm like, 
but those are some of the most interesting sentences. And how could you not? Yes. (laughs) You have creative, you know, there's creative reasons to use sentence fragments. There's all, you know, there's all kinds of justifications to break the rules. But I think, but you're right that you have to know the rules before you can break them. I mean, I think that is, that is one of the adages of the arts. (laughs) So I am terribly curious, and this might be a tricky question. If mm-hmm. you had to have a title for your life, what would it be? For my life? Like if my like life a- was a book? Mm-hmm. If your life was a book, yep. Or a podcast? <laughs> um, uh, how I plateaued in upper mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like most of my creative endeavors, I get like above mediocre. But never like excellent. I tend to plateau at all skill levels, whether it was, you know, instrumental music as a kid or visual arts. I, you know, get good enough to get noticed, but never get better. And I feel like I'm that way with almost every creative endeavor of mine. <laughs> Plateauing in upper mediocrity. That's a catchy title, though. Is it? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it might just be a discouraging one. what is um something that you absolutely love about your career field that you found surprising okay the moments that bring me the most joy that I was not expecting and I should have expected this there will be moments where I have like 20 students working in pairs deeply analyzing poems and like having animated conversations and the room is just full of noise And I'll just stand there and be like, I am so happy that 20 people are just geeking out over poetry right now. Um, That's just, that just brings me such joy. Those moments where you're like, this is a really cool job. Um, And then there are the moments where I like, I'll get really feeling bogged down with work and I'll be like, oh, boo hoo, I get to read for a living. You know, I mean, I do have to remind myself that it's a pretty cool job as, as much as uh, hard work it is. And and a lot of the work that is hard is stuff I impose on myself. Like I don't have to teach a class where I'm reading six brand new novels, <laughs> but I want to do that. So, but believe me, class prep um, in those semesters gets, you know, well into the night of me reading hundreds of pages. <laughs> Too bad you don't get overtime for reading, right? Oh, I know it's, it's supposed to be, I guess it's a fringe benefit of my job, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's the other part that's really cool is we get a lot of free books. That's a pretty special perk. Right? Because you could be like, I teach. And they'll be yeah. like, we'll send you a copy. <laughs> it's harder than it used to be, though. I have noticed. Uh, so there, we will um, get promos for like the new novel from Penguin. And they'll say, do you want to preview it? For teaching and I'll say sure and they'll be like okay we'll send you a digital copy and you have to use it in our platform and it's and I do not like ebooks I don't enjoy reading that in them I have to have a, I'm just old-fashioned I have to have the actual print book in my hand uh, I do love I should say I love ebooks for when I'm writing about a book because it's really easy to like find the language like oh I remember this scene where this person uses this great metaphor and I can search for it in the ebook that's wonderful as a tool but as a reading experience, I need a real book. And so, yeah, I'll get free books, but they'll be like, here's your free download in our platform. But, uh, and it doesn't work as well as some of the other platforms. Yes, but at least it saves paper. It does. I'm all about saving the planet. 
Yeah, trade-offs. <laughs> yeah. I think there are worse environmental impacts than printing books, but... <laughs> true. Very true. <laughs> I'm going to defend books for as long as I can. When I was in grad school in the 90s, I guess it was, mid-90s, I remember them saying, all of these books will be gone. It will be all digital in 20 years, and it's not, and I'm delighted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I definitely like holding a book in my hand more. Yeah. I do like that. Um, I don't know if you're noticing this, but I am reading more about and noticing in my student behavior a push against technology. Um, students who are choosing to write notes by hand, um, students, uh, younger people who refuse to have smartphones, um, people who want print books. I, and I gave an exam the other day and I let them choose about whether they wanted to do an online version or a print, a handwritten version. And out of the 20 students in that class, I think 17 did it by hand. So I found that very encouraging. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good thing because, you know, like you said, there's just something different about handwriting and having the tangible objects. Yeah. Yeah. And it does some, your mind works differently and you can see it in front of you differently. So another book question, if you could be any fictional character for a day, who would you be? That's easy. Pippi Longstocking. She's got a bag full of gold, a monkey and a horse and no parental supervision. I mean, <laughs> she was my, one of my role models when I was a kid and I still would love to spend a day being Pippi Longstocking. She doesn't care what people think. She doesn't care about rules. She would sleep in her bed upside down. I mean... <laughs> I remember that movie as a kid. It was the best. Yeah. yeah, she was funny. You know, she probably wanted to spend more time with her parents, but she seemed like she was having a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're the first person who to mention Pippi Longstocking. I get a lot of people mentioning like um Elizabeth Bennett and things like that. So. Oh gosh. What <laughs> I would like to be trapped in my class status and my gender role and wait for some man to court me. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> yeah, I don't romanticize the past like that. <laughs> I want to be a, a loudmouth with all the money and candy <laughs> and a monkey to play with. I would, that said, I wouldn't actually want a pet monkey in real life, and I find it morally problematic too make pets of wild animals, but in a fantasy fiction world, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of regular pets, do you have any regular pets? I do. They are, they impede my writing process quite a bit. <laughs> um, I have a dog and a 90 pound border collie mix and uh, a cat. Yeah, that's all. Just the two <laughs> of them. They tolerate each other. That's cute. <laughs> yes. Does your cat ever like to go up on the laptop? Absolutely. Or to just like uh, attack my arm while I'm typing because I'm not using it to pet her. <laughs> yeah. See, that's really what's slowing you down here. It is. There are many factors, but that is a big one. Yes. <laughs> if you could bring any creative person back from the dead to have a chat, who would it be? I think it would be James Baldwin. Although, you know, yeah, because I thought about this before when people say, like, if you could have a dinner party with, like, you know, 
this number of famous people who would be at the table. And I was always like, oh, it would be James Baldwin, even though I would probably find him incredibly intimidating. And, uh, you know, I'm sure I would put my foot in my mouth and, and he would take me down. But I just, I find him brilliant. I, I think if he if he were if you were the kind of person he trusted, he'd probably be hilarious and wonderful to be around. Um, he's just yeah, he just there's something about him. He's, he's very charismatic. I think I would love to meet him. Yeah, I, I do. I can say you you asked me a favorite book question before. I do have a favorite short story. I have many favorite short stories, but James Baldwin's short story called Sonny's Blues is one of the most gorgeous short stories I've ever read. And I remember is, that one. It's a story I can read over and over again. It is just, it gives me goosebumps. Mm-hmm. The imagery is just so powerful. Mm-hmm. The very cup of trembling. There's that great line about the very cup of trembling as he's listening to his brother play the piano. It's lovely. That's a good one. That's a good one. If you had no barriers at all to a project what do you think you would embark on okay this is going to sound like it's really from left field but um I actually had a moment about a month ago I was in another I was in Durham North Carolina for a meeting and I had extra time and I went to the Nasher Museum on of art on Duke University's campus and there were so many pieces of art there that got me really inspired to make things. Cause I do do some, I still dabble in some visual arts on the side. And, um, I said, I proclaimed in that museum, if I had enough money, I would just take an entire year off of work and just make stuff based on what I'm seeing here today. And so that's what I would do. Then the specific project, I, I really love doing textile-based projects. I like to sew and do all kinds of textile arts. And um, there was, and I'm afraid to say this on, on your podcast because I know that thousands of listeners listen and I'm afraid that someone's going to steal my idea. But this is what, I was like, mom, I, my mom was with me. I was like, mom, this is the project that's going to make me famous. <laughs> um so there was an exhibit of the early works of Roy Lichtenstein, who does the like comic book arts, you know, the paintings that are based on comics. Before he did that style, he um, did all kinds of cool stuff and his style really evolved. But he had this whole series that were based on work. He was working in some kind of um, uh, industrial mechanical setting. And he was doing these really interesting paintings of the details of machines this would have been in the like late fifties, early sixties. And so like, you know, gears and paintings of um, like the inner workings of like film projectors, but they were all in these really interesting color schemes that were not naturalistic. And they were all kind of um, semi abstract. And I thought these would make gorgeous textile works like tapestries. And so I took a bunch of reference photos and I'm going to start making fabric textile versions of his paintings that's like that's the project i want to do like if i could just take a year off and make stuff that would be it so that sounds so strange because i've been talking about writing and reading this whole time but i i have this like creative bug that i don't an itch i don't get to scratch enough and i would love to take time off to just do that that's really neat well, I, I hope you're able to find that time, even if it's just in small moments here and there. Yeah, once I get this biography manuscript done, I think I will have more creative space, both time and mental. 
Um, yeah, so be looking for my Liechtenstein textiles when I'm famous in an exhibit someday. There you go. Hey, you never know. <laughs> Nobody cares about textile art. <laughs> how has your creative life, or rather, how has your life in the creative arts been different than you imagined? Well, I thought I'd be more creative. <laughs> I thought I would be making, I mean, I, I literally thought I might be a novelist someday up until I was in my 20s. So that still always surprises me, I suppose. <laughs> Um, I do feel like I, um, I think, you know, I, I, I kind of, uh, you know, the adage, like those who can do and those who can't teach or something like that, I, I find it both semi-true and also offensive. Um, but I do feel like I've done a very good job of helping other people find their creative selves when I teach. Um, and I think that's important work. And I think the more I teach, the more I understand I'm going back to more creative writing because I feel like I've used creative ways to, I've used creative writing to help students be better critics of how writing works and how good writing works. And the more I teach it, the more I realize, like, I think I need to come full circle back to, to creative writing. So in that way, it's been surprising to me that I haven't done more creative writing and it's been surprising to me that I'm returning to it late in life, but I also am, I guess I'm not that surprised because I have several friends in my generation who are doing the same thing and shifting the kind of creative work they're doing. And I find that very interesting that, that people are doing different genres than they used to do or what they were known for, um, that they're like, I, I, one of my dear friends from graduate school never wrote poetry back then. And now is publishing poetry left and right, beautiful stuff and winning awards for it. And I'm just so excited for her. Um, and another good friend of mine who has been just taking off with writing creative nonfiction. That's just this gorgeous stuff about the prairies. And, and, you know, I love nature writing, but I never think about it the way she did. And I love having conversations with people, these kinds of people, because they just make you see the world in a new way. And I think that's always really exciting. Um, and that's, I think, another thing I find surprising is you think you know what you like creatively as a consumer of creative stuff, but there's always stuff surprising you, which is really cool. I think it's great that you are returning to that creative writing fiction interest that you have, because in doing your teaching and in doing all of your academic stuff, you could say that you've just been preparing and readying for that moment your whole life. Well, let's hope it goes someplace fantastic. <laughs> but, it, you know, like I said, the journey is part of the fun, too. So if it doesn't go anywhere, that's fine. You know, yeah. if I do it for me. I think the other thing that's been really surprising to me is that I've done some songwriting, which I never imagined I would have done. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's been fun. I haven't done as much lately as I did, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, but I go on jags of songwriting and that always surprises me since I am completely self-taught when it comes to that kind of thing. Because if I remember right, you play guitar, right? I do. Yeah. I'm surprised you remembered that. Yes, I do play guitar. I don't play it terribly well. Um, and I also sing uh, folk music. And so it's all self-taught by ear. And I've done some writing. And so that's been nice too that... Um, you know, that you can tell some interesting stories in song that you can't tell in other ways. And that's wonderful that you've been able to have that creative outlet because 
obviously quite different than your regular job. Yeah, it's been a... I mean, when I was still in Lawrence, uh, I was living in Lawrence until 2010, and um, and I'm still involved with the same group of women. We have, still have a band, but when I was still living there, we would play together every Friday night, and it was just our like release from the week. <laughs> it was it was such a wonderful space to be in, and I really missed that weekly playing. I don't I don't really have anyone here that I play music with, so I miss that. We're going to wrap up with one final question, which is, what does living a creative life mean to you? Oh, I think that's a great question. Um, I think it, it can be in the simplest. To me, it's about the way you see the world and choosing to see the world in interesting and new ways and to challenge yourself to do that constantly. And that can be as much as just noticing the details of the way the light falls across your kitchen table, like you just being really awake to that, to the aesthetic experience of everyday life. Um, because I think that's where a lot of inspiration begins to actually making and doing things. So I think even if one doesn't consider themselves creative, as in making things, I think there are creative ways of seeing the world and then taking that way of seeing into everything you do, whether it's your work or your uh, interactions with the physical space you're in. Excellent. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I would love to talk to you for hours because you've inspired me to think about things I haven't thought about in a long time. So uh, congrats on the podcast and uh, thanks for inviting me. You're welcome. Listeners, please check the show notes for Dr. Floriani's biography and have a great day. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show? Have a question? Stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for a creative piecemeal podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.